This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Neonatology Review Podcast. It's Tuesday. We are talking about MFM. Daphna, you're doing good? Yeah, doing great. I'm not going to pretend like we can see if the next morning you're feeling better. We're recording these one after another. <laughs> so you're doing just as well. I'm as doing you're... just as well as I was when we started. Yeah. Let's not right. pretend. Like we could just make it sound like 24 hours have elapsed and that we are back. But, but they have not. No, we are exactly where we were. We are continuing to record. We're just... Uh, you know, delivering the content in appropriate bite-sized formats. Okay, we talked about hypertension, hypertensive disease of pregnancy. Yesterday, we left off at the differences between adverse conditions and severe complications. And remember, we said adverse conditions are uh, associated conditions to hypertension that require close monitoring of the patient and severe complications are what re- is, required, is requiring immediate delivery. So the next, we're on page 18. The next topic we need to talk about is something that we are all very familiar with, and it is HELP syndrome. It's one of these things where, as a, as a student, you're like, why didn't they do this for every syndrome, where basically the syndrome has a name that you can remember. It stands for something that helps you know the, <laughs> so know, true. So know the things. So HELP syndrome is actually quite uh, easy to remember. The things that are um, interesting is that up to 20% of women with this syndrome do not have proteinuria or hypertension prior to these findings. And that is terrifying because um, HELP syndrome is, is quite serious. And HELP syndrome basically stands for, basically you have five letters in this word. The first words, the first H stands for hemolysis with elevated lactate dehydrogenase or elevated total bilirubin level. And then the last four letters are standing for two separate entities. EL stands for elevated liver enzymes with a serum ALT of 70 or more. And LP stands for low platelets with levels of platelets that are 100,000, less than 100,000. And the big question that is being asked, and this is just for us to think about, we're not really going to give an answer, but the question is, is this really a severe form of preeclampsia or is this like a separate disorder entirely? And based on what we said initially with uh, this idea that 20% of women who develop the syndrome do not have proteinuria or hypertension prior to these findings, you may be tempted to think maybe it's a separate disorder. Well, if you are a researcher and you want to investigate that, please, we encourage you to give us the answer. I do not have the answer for you. And, um, but it is something, I guess, that you may be tempted to think as, a, as an evolution of preeclampsia but I just want to make sure that we don't automatically make this assumption because it is very much a subject of debate. Okay. What are some of the risks to the fetus when it comes to uh, having preeclampsia? Well, the, the risk of, um, the risk of, uh, the risks affecting the fetus are a, a very significantly increased risk of intrauterine growth restriction, which we'll talk about more today and preterm delivery if severe preeclampsia. Again, the risk is higher 
the earlier you are in pregnancy. And we've talked about some of the complications, especially the severe complications of preeclampsia, where really you may be forced to deliver this patient in order to prevent worsening complications. There are some maternal medication that could impact the infant. One of the medications that is very commonly used in, uh, in preeclampsia to prevent it is magnesium sulfate. And obviously, these, these medications could have a significant impact on the baby. A mother that is receiving significant doses of magnesium could be giving birth to a baby that is going to be, I guess, respiratorily depressed at birth and may need further support. And that's obviously something that is not uh, great <laughs> for a baby to go through. Um, in severely growth-restricted infants, you can have thrombocytopenia and or neutropenia. And we've all seen this, babies who are born to mothers with preeclampsia who have platelet counts below 100,000 or who have ANCs that are absolute neutrophil counts that are low. Uh, that is something that is uh, very well documented in these patients. So what are some of the preventive strategies that we can use to reduce uh, preeclampsia? And uh, Brodsky and Martin give us a list of four medications, the first one being calcium, which um, led to lower risk of preeclampsia in women with low calcium intake and high risk of uh, preeclampsia. The level of evidence for that is high. Another medication that is described is aspirin, which has led to the reduction in preeclampsia if you started before 16 weeks of gestation in high-risk patients. The use of unfractioned heparin and low molecular weight heparin reduces uh, secondary outcome of preeclampsia in high-risk women and reduces perinatal mortality, preterm birth, and growth restriction. The evidence for that, however, for heparin is uh, fair to good. And finally, the one we just talked about, magnesium sulfate, which leads to a reduction in the incidence of initial and recurrent seizures compared with anticonvulsants alone. The evidence for that is high. So how do we actually manage patients with preeclampsia? Well, you may need to manage their blood pressure, so provide antihypertensive medication. If severe hypertension, um, possible medication could include nifedipine, hydralazine, nibidolol, methyl dopa, nicardipine, and nitroprusside. Um, you may be put in a position to have these patients deliver preterm, and uh, that is something that we see commonly. And the postpartum period requires very close monitoring because maternal symptoms may worsen soon after delivery. All things we will never unfortunately encounter because of the profession we chose. But if you are considering a reconversion into obstetrics, at least you know that. <laughs> Seriously. When you're reading this, it's like the, the, the management of a postpartum patient after delivery and their symptoms. I mean, like, I'm very, I'm a curious person, and I'd love to know this, but for me to ask me to memorize this for the test is kind of, kind of bonkers. All right. Mm -hmm. The last point that we need to talk about in the case of hypertensive disease of pregnancy is the infamous eclampsia. Not preeclampsia, but eclampsia. And this is a very rare condition. It affects 0.1% of all pregnancies. 10% of eclamptic females do not have proteinuria. And the one feature that is very much uh, pathognomonic for eclampsia is generalized tonic-clonic seizures. And the seizures can occur antepartum, intrapartum, or up to seven days postpartum. I think that's a very easy way to draft a question. You can say that a, 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 a pregnant uh, patient has high blood pressure and, uh, I don't know, some adverse feature gets delivered, right? And then develops a seizure after the baby is born, mm -hmm. what's the diagnosis? 
And you should be aware that if they cease within seven days of uh, delivery, it's eclampsia. And, you know, this this atypical preeclampsia um, uh, where it's presenting after delivery or eclampsia after delivery, they could still have symptoms. You know, the fetus, the, the infant can still be affected. So sometimes we may see these symptoms, you know, clinical features in babies and you're like, well, there's no history of, you know, a hypertensive disorder. What can we blame it on? But they may still develop the symptoms. Right. Other symptoms of eclampsia may be present and include headaches, blurry vision, photophobia, um, and changes in mental status. The uh, right upper quadrant pane is the other one that I wanted to mention. Basically, you treat it as you would treat preeclampsia with severe feature. And magnesium sulfate is critical because you do not want to have a mother seize. Without treatment, the mortality can range from 0.5% to 17%. And the fetal mortality rate can go as high as 37%. So it's definitely something that is terrifying and that needs to be recognized and addressed promptly. And now this concludes our discussion of hypertensive disease of pregnancy. Any questions? Everything is okay? No, I think it was a really good review. Thank you very much, ma'am. We're going to go next to the logical follow-up mm -hmm. topic, which is uh, growth restriction and small for gestational age. So now I'm going to ask you to bear with me until I can find the page. We are now okay. going to section nine. I'm going to stop sharing my screen. Okay, we're going to go to section nine uh, on page 30 of the book. So what's interesting is there's always a big discussion about what is the difference between IUGR and SGA. Are they the same thing or why are we using two different words? And I think um, what is interesting is that IUGR reflects the rate of growth of a fetus during pregnancy. And so a baby may start to grow on a certain percentile during pregnancy, and we're expecting them to follow that path, right? And if they're falling off this, this growth curve that is supposed to be during pregnancy, then they'll be considered to be growth restricted. But they may still be born at a weight that is above the 10th percentile for babies of this sex, right? Uh, and this gestational age. So they will be AGA, appropriately, uh, appropriately grown for gestational age, right? So IUGR is something that is basically you assessing the growth of a baby during pregnancy. SGA means that when a baby is delivered and you weigh them and you measure them, they are below the 10th percentile for the standard growth curves you are using to measure baby to measure babies at this particular gestational age. Okay. So if you have a 36 week if you have I don't know if you have a full term baby that is IUGR but comes out and is like uh, if you have like a 37 weeker and the baby comes out and is like 3800 grams like they may have been growth restricted in utero because they were supposed to grow more and I may be just I'm just trying to make the numbers kind of drastic. But when the baby comes out, the weight is okay for gestational age. So technically the baby is not going to be considered SGA. So while you may be IUGR during pregnancy, you're not automatically SGA anymore. Okay. So what are some of the etiologies of um, growth restrictions? And I think the best way to understand this is try to understand the different categories. And there's technically five, I think you should remember maybe three to four of them. So the first one is unknown, right? So you can't figure it out. That's not really a category. Um, 
But the three categories we want to know is it's either some maternal factors or placental factors or fetal factors. And, and that will make a lot of sense. So maternal factors, it makes a lot of sense. Let's say your mother has poor weight gain during pregnancy, inadequate nutrition, that can lead to decreased fetal weight, especially during the third trimester. And that's like super straightforward. If, you, if, if a mother is fasting every day, she's not eating, then, then the baby is not going to grow very well. Other uh, maternal factors can include like toxic habits such as smoking or the use of drugs. Um, these can actually uh, lead to growth restriction. And then some, some maternal diseases that could complicate uh, the growth of the fetus. The one we just talked about, hypertension, right? So hypertension is obviously um, uh, a risk factor. It's the greatest risk factor if you're actually dealing with preeclampsia or chronic hypertension. Um, and usually that leads to asymmetric uh, growth restriction, uh, especially during the third trimester. And then you have other maternal diseases that are not, uh, not hypertension, but could include maternal cyanotic heart disease, cystic fibrosis, maternal asthma, maternal renal disease, maternal sickle cell disease, lupus, inflammatory bowel disease, advanced diabetes, hyperthyroidism, and obviously all these maternal pathologies could put the fetus at risk of poor growth. But I think you'll probably memorize these diseases on your own. I think for now, what you need to remember is that there are maternal factors, right? Either poor nutrition, uh, smoking and drugs, and then hypertension is a big one you should remember, and then all sorts of different other diseases that could put the baby at risk. Um, then you could have placental factors, and uteroplacental insufficiency is the most common. Placental factors can include multiple gestation, twin-to-twin -twin transfusion, placenta previa, velitis due to congenital infection, chronic placental abruption, right? If you're not, if you, I mean, if you have a chronic abruption, then you're not going to get all the nutrients you need and you're not going to grow. Abnormal cord insertion, multiple placental infarct, and syncytial knots. So placental factors, we talked about maternal factors, placental factors, and then fetal factors. So maybe something's wrong with the baby. And these include cardiovascular anomalies and renal agenesis, typically lead to poor growth. Infections can lead to poor growth. Remember, we, we are going to get to the infectious disease uh, part of the review where we talk about torch and so on. And multiple gestation, uh, typically where growth decreases at about 30 weeks of gestation. So far, so good. So the next thing that we talk about are what are the differences between symmetric versus asymmetric uh, growth restriction. So symmetric growth restriction means that the head circumference is proportional to the rest of the baby, meaning everything is small. You have a head, a length, and a weight that are all less than the 10th percentile for that gestational age. The time of onset is actually usually prior to the third trimester. When you have a symmetrically uh, growth-restricted infant, usually that means that this pathology started early in pregnancy. We're going to talk about the ponderal index in a second, but the ponderal index should be normal. Um, the risk of perinatal depression is low when you are symmetric, and we'll talk about that because that's something that I learned while I was doing my review. The blood flow to the internal carotid artery is normal. Glycogen, fat, and glucose are, uh, the stores are relatively normal, and you have a low risk of hypoglycemia. 
the etiology of symmetric IUGR slash SGA is usually intrinsic and results from either chromosomal anomalies, congenital infections, and sometimes some inborn error of metabolism. When we're looking at asymmetric IUGR, which is probably the one we see more frequently, where basically the head circumference is appropriately grown, the head, is, the head size is appropriate, but the rest of the body is small, that usually means that the time of onset of growth restriction happened later in pregnancy, probably like uh, during the third trimester. The ponderal index is low, and the reason for that is because... Um, We'll, we'll talk about the ponderal index in a second because I don't want to get into that right now. The risk of perinatal depression is increased with babies who are asymmetric uh, SGA. That is something that uh, I would not have uh, I would not have figured out. So if you have a symmetric SGA, your risk of perinatal depression is lower, but it increases, and you have a higher risk of perinatal depression if you are asymmetric SGA. Um, Blood flow to the internal carotid artery is increased, and uh, that's why the brain growth is spared. You usually have low glycogen and fat stores, so it puts you at a higher risk of being hypoglycemic. So asymmetric SGA, higher risk of perinatal depression, higher risk of hypoglycemia. And usually these are caused by env environmental issues, such as uteroplacental insufficiency from preeclampsia, chronic hypertension, or maternal diabetes. So far, so good. I just lost it there. Fine. Diagnosis. Okay. So how do we make uh, the diagnosis? So obviously, you want to look at patients who are at a high risk. You've mentioned that on Monday. Uh, we want to know that baby patients who have multiple gestation, poor weight gain, poor prenatal care, these patients need to be followed very closely. You can, use the uter you can perform the uterine uh, fundal height which basically looks at how high the fundus is, and you can try to assess this, but um, it identifies about 40% of IUGR fetuses. It's measured between 18 and 30 weeks, um, and you can tell based on the difference between where the fundal height is supposed to be uh, if you're dealing with a baby that's IUGR. Obviously, uh, this is not the most precise method. And then you could do some measurements. You could look, you could look at fetal abdominal circumference, compared to the expected for gestational age. We can talk about the ponderal index, which is basically the weight in grams times 100 divided by the crown to heel uh, distance. So what's interesting is that when you think about that, right, we just talked about the ponderal index um, for, um, for symmetric versus uh, asymmetric uh, IUGR. So um, if the head is small, right? And you're using the crown to heal, then, <coughs> then that length is going to be smaller, right? So that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can look at femur length. You could look at amniotic fluid volume, and you could look at diastolic flow velocity. Okay. So far, so good. I think to me, the highest yield information for growth restriction is what we're going to talk about, which are the neonatal effects of growth restriction. So what are some of the effects? I guess we're going to go one by one. So they can have a depressed immune system. And the thought process, the pathophysiology behind that is because growth-restricted infants have decreased lymphocyte numbers. Actually, you know what? 
neonatal effect, we can we can do the the end of the we can do the end of that section tomorrow. I think we've done a lot. It's already 19 minutes. You have probably a question. I'm gonna stop here. You got it. Okay. Uh, thank you. Very very good. Let me get you this question. So this is uh, maternal fetal medicine question 82. You were asked to consult on a pregnancy with monochorionic twins. At 20 weeks gestation, one of the twins has been diagnosed with intrauterine growth restriction, IUGR. At the most recent follow-up, 29 weeks, the biophysical profile of the growth-restricted twin was concerning, and the decision was made to deliver. Which of the following statements related to this scenario is false? False. A, right, false. We'll make the same You're mistake for, as right. You're looking for the wrong answer. Okay. Um, a, clinical of clinical evolution of selective IUGR shows remarkable variability. B, placental anastomoses have a protective effect on the IUGR twin. C, the greater the degree of placental territory, the less significant the degree of IUGR. Let me read that again, because even I thought it was... I'm, I'm losing you. <laughs> Slowly, but surely. <laughs> the... The greater the degree of placental territory, the less significant the degree of IUGR. Okay, I, I guess that means in the twins sharing the placental territory. D, the presence of positive diastolic flow in the umbilical artery of the small twin is a good prognostic factor. Or E, the larger twin is not at increased risk for pathology. We're looking for the false one. Mm -hmm. I like that last choice that you just gave us right now. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, God, I got to the last answer. That one makes sense. So, yeah, I think this is a really important um, uh, data point. So I don't know what you said before, but that one I <laughs> but know. That one I know is wrong. <laughs> that's right. Sometimes that's all you need to get the question right. So, look, so don't get overwhelmed by the questions. Get all the way to the last question, last answer choice. Because something may flag. Where's right? my bailout? Bailout, bailout. That's right. The, the false choice, the larger twin is not at increased risk for pathology. Uh, because we know that in um, these scenarios, even the twin who's not growth restricted is at increased risk for pathology. So severe growth restriction uh, of one twin in monochorionic pregnancies shows remarkable variability. Pregnancies with the same degree of weight discrepancy can have different clinical outcomes. These outcomes depend on multiple factors. For example, inadequate placental sharing can result in a varied territorial division of the placenta between the twins. And the smaller the placental territory, the more pronounced the growth restriction. The presence of placental anastomoses can be beneficial for the small twin as blood from the larger twin can compensate for the placental insufficiency. One of the best prognostic factors in growth restriction of one twin is the presence of positive diastolic flow in the umbilical artery of the small twin. If present at diagnosis, this flow yeah, pattern... That just, means, that just means they're getting enough, right? That's right. a sign that there's there's good perfusion and that they're not being sort of shortchanged by the, the perfusion. Huh. Yeah, you talked to us about um, absent end diastolic flow yeah. uh, last, the, the, pre, the first week. Yeah. Um, if present at diagnosis, this flow pattern rarely changes and is associated with a benign clinical evolution. The presence of anastomosis can lead to hemodynamic changes that can cause hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, particularly in the larger twin. The larger twin is also at increased risk for neurologic injury. Okay. 
Okay. See you tomorrow. Sounds good. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.